Amen. You can have a seat. Um, good morning, everybody. Uh, Pastor Jamie and his family are in warmer climes and sunny climes, having a good time where they are, and we are here in sunny and colder climes, and you got me. Thank you. That's better than the last crowd that all walked out. Um, yesterday, when I was overlooking or looking over uh, my sermon, I realized the introduction was awful. <laughs> I said, I got I to fix this. And I went upstairs to, to talk to Nita about an idea that I had. And, and, th- and this, this, was the, this is the culminating, this is in Nita's introduction to the sermon today, okay? So you all know what this is. If you've ever had a first grader, you know what this is? Let me show you what's in here. Um, it's supposed to be a plant, right? It's just a leaf right now. But, you know, you get it, right? First graders, uh, spring is tomorrow, right? Monday morning, they're going to go to school. They're going to get a little Dixie cup. They're going to get a little seed. They're going to get a bunch of dirt. They're going to water it, set it in the sun, and voila, a weed, a growth. Now, that's fine for that much, but, you know, what? here's, here's the instruction I got from my wife, and she's got a green thumb, and I would kill these if they stay here too much longer. This is that grown up. And it needs a bigger plant, right? It needs something bigger than than that. But you know what happens? And and Nita's got this greenish thumb. And they grow. And they grow big. These these are from two other plants in a pot that she had that she had to move them around. And so now they're this. Pretty soon, they're going to be huge. They're going to take over our living room. No, no, Nita, no, they won't. I get it. She'll fix it. All right. The point of all of this is to say Christian growth looks just like that. Christian growth starts out real small, a little seed in us, right, when we're like, when we're dead in sin. And that seed operates and cracks open and brings growth. Uh, that's all God's doing. But that seed also needs nourishment, right? It needs water. It needs sunshine. It needs fertilizer. It needs me to stay away from it, that sort of thing. And, and that's what I want to talk to us about this morning, and that is how do we grow in holiness? Is there a prayer in the book, anywhere in the Bible, that tells us how we can grow in holiness and motivate and encourage us to grow in holiness because we need the nutrients, the outside sources that will do that? And that... It's going to be a short little prayer at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 22. So if you want to look at it um, with me, um, I've still got Be Thou My Vision up here, and I don't want to sing it to people because that would be horrible for them. So help me. There we go. Revelation 22. Let's look at verse uh, 20. This is what John wrote. Right at the end, almost at the end, there's one more verse after this, but it's almost at the end. He says, he who testifies to these things says, and he's talking about Jesus here, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Or even so, come, Lord Jesus. There's the prayer. That's a prayer. Simple little prayer. And don't you find yourself praying it every now and then when you see stuff and you just go, oh, Lord, come. Just come. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this short little prayer that has such an impact on our lives. 
and uh, parallels the life of these plants. We are dependent on you to grow into Christ-likeness through that whole biblical doctrine of the process of, of sanctification or holiness. And we want to grow in holiness because we know that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Uh, I wonder what goes through your mind when you see, uh, when you hear about or when you see predictions that Jesus is coming back. Now, we've had that happen often in the church. I remember one time, it was 1988, it was 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come back. And then in 1989, he had to rewrite the book, and guess what the title was? 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back, and and it did not happen. But I think the funniest that I ever experienced, when I graduated from seminary, I went to uh, uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and we drove there from Colorado because it was just like a lovely drive. So we drove, you know, 1,200 miles so we could go to the graduation ceremony, and as we drove into town, there was a huge billboard right next to the bridge that gets you into Louisville, and it said, Jesus was going to return on such and such a date, which just happened to be a day and a half away from my graduation. So I thought, well, that's rather curious. I wonder what the good Dr. Al Mohler is going to say about that. He's the president of the SBTS. So day of the graduation, nice, warm, sunny day in May. We're all outside on the commons. And the first thing that Dr. Mohler said when he got up was, Well, ladies and gentlemen, congratulations on your achieving the degrees that you have worked so hard for over these last three years, but I'm just here to tell you, you only have 36 hours to enjoy them. (laughs) And that made us all feel so well, uh, so warm and fuzzy. I say, well, how do you respond when you see or think about or just think about the reality of Christ's return? He's going to return. So what, what, what do you think about? What happens in your heart when you... Think about those things. Maybe you think, boy, it would be great if he'd return because this will be a great escape from the things that are going on in this world. Or maybe you might be thinking, um, boy, I can't wait to see the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth. Maybe panic might set in. I remember a time when, when everybody was talking about Jesus returning and, and young men and women of our age were saying, well, I hope it doesn't happen soon because I just want to get married first. Okay, well, those are reactions. The reality is, no one will see the Lord without holiness whenever he comes. So, John is writing to the churches. Uh, you know, in the first couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3 specifically, he's writing to seven churches, but he's writing to all the churches, and he's writing to Cornerstone Church this morning as well, in order to encourage us to grow in sanctification or holiness or Christ-likeness. And I'm going to use those words synonymously. And he writes five encouragements. And he's, and now, I want you to understand, he's writing to Christians like us, who are under tremendous persecution at this time. It's about the mid-90s A.D. The, the Christians were, were forced into emperor worship. The emperor at the time was Domitian, and he demanded that everybody in the empire repeat the phrase and worship him at their temple, saying, Caesar is Lord. Can you see how that would be a conflict for the Christian? Because we say Jesus is Lord. So this puts us immediately in conflict with the state. And at that time, you could be exiled like John was to the Isle of Patmos. You could have your goods and houses confiscated some way, maybe thrown in prison. Or worse, 
you could be executed. So John is writing to people in that kind of setting and saying, regardless of the hostile atmosphere you are in, the Lord wants us to grow in holiness. And then he gives us five encouragements of that from verse 6. It's very interesting. At the very end of the book of Revelation, the first thing on John's mind is how the return of Christ will promote holiness in our lives. So, let's look at that first encouragement. What I'm going to do is uh, put up there on the screen, like the idea behind the verse and this verse, the idea that I, I, I want to draw out of it is that we are to arm ourselves with confidence in God. And this is what verse 6 says. And he said to me, uh, this is the angel that is talking with John, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps, that's the operative word here, who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So how do we arm ourselves with confidence in the things that God has said in his word from genera uh, generation, Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation? The key idea, keep the words, because that's where the blessing of holiness will be found. The greater knowledge that we grow in of the Lord and his work grows the confidence in us, and we can face this messed up and ruined and uh, broken and shaky world, because it is messed up. Would you agree? So here's how I've sort of rephrased this. If you want to live blessedly, and interestingly, another way of translating the word blessed is just to say happy. If you want to live happily, if you want to live happily, blessedly, Arm yourself with confidence in the truth of God, and that truth will fashion your life to look like Jesus. So, this is very important because this is really pointing us to uh, Bible intake. It's, fa it's fa fascinating. Uh, people who uh, study these sorts of things have looked at how, how the church is um, literate biblically over the last 20, 25, 30, even 50 years, and the literacy of Bible understanding in the church has been going down every year. When we got to the pandemic, you know what happened? It went up. It went up by 100%. Sounds like a lot, but it really wasn't. But there were people who were wondering, what is this about? And so they turned to God's word in order to face the dilemma of that pandemic. And reading the Bible for understanding is good, but getting that understanding into the heart is what transforms us and gives us the strength to face life. Now, James, the apostle, tells us how that happens. He said, the one who looks intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty, meaning God's word, and perseveres being no hearer only who forgets but a doer who acts. He's the one who is blessed in his doing. So you hear what he says? Look intently. Look intently. 
Christians look intently into God's Word, not a once in a while kind of thumbing through for a verse that kind of make me get me out of the bed in the morning and get me on to work, but an intentional and careful examination of God's Word as if, you know how it is when you see something on the ground you're not really sure what it is and you've got to stoop down and look at it really close? That's the kind of examination that James is talking about when he uses the word intently. Very focused, very intense focus. This is how we survive in a messy world, brothers and sisters. This word keeps us faithful, grows us even in a hostile atmosphere. And, and, and think about this. That little seed that has to grow is in a hostile atmosphere to some degree because it's got to crack open the shell. It's got to grow up through dirt, so there's a lot going against it, but it needs water and sunshine, right? So we are in a hostile atmosphere. The world hates God, so the world will hate you. Jesus said, don't be surprised. He hated me. He's going to hate you. Welcome to the Christian life. The Word of God is the most powerful confidence builder that we have to keep us from uh, drifting away. Um, even David said this, I've hidden your word in my heart that I won't sin against you. Why? Why? Because I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to drift away from God. So how uh, does that work? Well, we'll talk about it in a minute. But we tell a lot of people that we, that we coach, you say, you know, six words from God's word will change your life forever. Just six words. It doesn't matter what those words are. If they're from God's word and they strike you in the heart, and they can transform your life forever. It's Charles Spurgeon, who, who got saved as a young man, went in a snowstorm to go to church because he was so worried about his, his, his relationship with God. When he got there, the preacher couldn't make it. And so some fellow got up there, and all the, all the guy could say, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't ordained or anything, he just said, look to Christ. Three words, look to Christ, look to Christ. And he looked up in the balcony at Spurgeon, and he said, young man, look to Christ. And Spurgeon gave his life to Christ just like that, because there were three words that penetrated his heart, changed his life for. Ever. All right, what's the next encouragement that John gives us? It is this, adore God alone, worship God alone. Here's what happened. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, look at these last two words. This is a command, worship God. Now, this is the second time that's happened to John. It happened to him earlier in chapter 19. Same angel is talking to him, and he falls down, and he, and he worships the angel. The angel says almost exactly the same thing and does include these last two words. He says, John, don't do that. I'm like a servant along with you. Worship God. So we mustn't be too hard on John because, after all, if, what, if, what if a holy angel of God radiating the glory of Jesus in the throne came and saw, uh, appeared to you? What would you do? Hey, how you doing, bud? Good to see you today. I doubt it. You would do what John did. You would, you would fall down in a heap. You would be like Isaiah. Oh, I am undone. Because the glory of the Lord 
is what's doing all this. But we don't worship angels. We worship God. Now, this is a remarkable statement to John to give to the churches. This command to worship God alone. Why, Why in the world? Would an angel from heaven tell John to tell the churches and to tell Cornerstone Church, worship God alone? You know why? Because we don't often do that. We worship God and a few other things as well. John Calvin one time wrote that the heart, the human heart, is an idol-making factory. And he included Christians in his thought. And it's true, isn't it? We, uh, whatever we depend on for um, success or anything like that, that becomes our God. Now, in this, in this book of Revelation, there are two churches that are actually following false gods. One of them is Pergamum. They were following the teaching of Balaam and Balak. Balaam, these are two Old Testament characters. Balaam had sold his soul out for money. Balak sold his soul out for power. And the two of them, while they were frustrated for a time, and inevitably led the people of God into sexual immorality. The other occasion was a church in Thyatira who had Jezebel in the church. I don't think that was her real name. I think that was a a sort of metaphoric name of saying, you've got a teacher in your church who is teaching you that it's okay with God that you practice any form of sexual immorality that you like. Sanctification frees the heart from this idol-making factory. Worshiping God alone frees the heart. Luther said, anything that your heart relies on or depends on, that is your God. So how do we make that test? How do we test ourselves to know if there's room in our th- the throne room of our heart for Jesus and something else? How do we do that? Well, here's, it, it, it's a very typical thing that happens whenever you are frustrated by something or someone that doesn't give you your way, you throw them under the bus in order to worship your idol. Here's how that works. I'm going to pick on dads for a minute because I am, I, I am one. I still am. Um, it's remarkable. Anyway, it's a typical thing that happens for dads. You know, and, and now, you, if you're a mom, you can fill in your own scenario. If you're a teenager, you've got the scenarios too. So you're working hard all day, dad. You're coming home. All you want is peace and quiet. You know, you just want a nice cold iced tea, whatever. Just sit in front of the tube, kind of chill out. It's a Friday. I got that uh, weekend ahead of me. Oh, I just need, I just need a moment. And that's all you're thinking about on your drive home. And then you pull into your driveway, and there are 15 bicycles in your way to the garage. And so you don't go, oh, thank you, Lord, for all the kids in the neighborhood coming over to visit with my children. No. You storm out of the car. You pick up those bikes, you heave them into the front lawn, and you call your children into the house. You summon them in the name of the dad so that they fix this problem because all you wanted was peace and quiet, and they ruined it. You are forcing your children to worship your God the minute you do that. That God God of I want peace is demanding that you worship it, and if you don't, it will be angry. Now, we all want things like success or 
security or satisfaction or significant, and we find it in a variety of ways. Um, Nina and I knew a, a young woman, uh, a wonderful Christian couple, who were in our church back in Minnesota, and, and, she, and she just wanted satisfaction in her life. She didn't really frame it that way, but here's what she would do. She would go out on spending sprees and buy hundreds of dollars of clothes, and then she'd feel bad about it, She'd take some back, she'd keep some, but this went on and on and on because she wanted to feel significant and satisfied in the way that she presented herself. And she's a very stylish woman. We, had, we talked with her about ways that she could break that because that was an idol, going to you know, all the best stores to buy something so that she felt good about herself. That's an idol. God-centered, Christ-exalting, and spirit-empowered worship acts like a disinfectant to expel the power of these hidden idols that torment us and push others away. Exclusive worship of God focuses our attention on God, not on ourselves. Exclusive worship of God reorients our hearts on what really matters and what doesn't matter as much. And exclusive worship of God readies us for our heavenly destiny. This is why it's so important. It's great when we're in here together. It is wonderful. The presence of God is here. Our hearts are oriented towards him every now and then. You know, I know we drift off, but, you know, we're, we're brought back to focus. That's great. But when we're on our own, when we're by ourselves, what's happening in here? Is it the same exclusivity? Well, the next encouragement that John gives is to the spiritually lethargic. And this isn't just for, you know, those people we know. This is for us because we get lazy too. And so here's what John says. And he said to me, don't seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now, just a footnote about that. In the book of Daniel, the angel tells him, seal it up. Don't open it up, seal it up. Here, John is told, open it up. Don't seal it up. Open it up. Why? Because the time of Christ's return is near. Let the, now, now here's, here's, here's the strangest verse in this whole sermon. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. What? Open up the word and let evil people and filthy people just continue in their way and the righteous still doing what's right and the holy still being holy. Now, I think we understand this, this second part, a little bit. We understand if you're righteous, if you're called righteous, that is, you're in Christ, continue to do righteousness. Don't stop. Just keep on doing it. You are holy. You are holy. We are holy. We're called saints, which is part of the word for sanctification. Keep on being holy. Keep pursuing holiness. What we don't get is this little bit in verse 11 that says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Why in the world would God say something like that? Well, this is, not, um, this is, this is similar to something Jesus said to his disciples when they asked him in, in uh, Matthew 13, I think it is, um, yeah, Matthew 13, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus said, well, the reason I teach in parables is so that I can conceal the truth and reveal the truth. Now, why in the world would Jesus want to conceal truth? What's he talking about? What's he doing? Wouldn't he want everyone to know the truth, to know the gospel and be saved? Well, of course he would. But what's this, 
let the evil people just keep being evil and the filthy people just keep being filthy. What is that all about? Well, here is what I think. Scripture is the most powerful means to discern the motives and the intents of the heart. That's what the writer to the Hebrews said. The Word of God is powerful. It discerns the motives. It gets right down into the, into the core of our heart, and it sees and examines and tests and exposes the motives of the heart. It also tests whether that heart is ready to receive the truth of Christ. It's always effective. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever the word of God is taught, it is always effective one way or the other way. It's effective to soften the heart and draw someone into the love of God through Christ, or it hardens the heart that rejects it. Now, I recall hearing the gospel presented to me many times before I got saved. From high school all the way to the time when I was uh, 26. Yeah. Okay. So 18 to 26. Quite a long time. Span in there. Heard the gospel. Actually read the Bible and some other Christian books. And it went right over my head. And I remember thinking, oh, this stuff is a bunch of bunk. I'm not getting it. This just isn't making any sense at all. And then I heard the gospel, and it was like a trumpet blast in my ears. Then I knew, wait a second, this is real. i got to do something about this. That's what happens whenever the gospel is preached, whenever you share the gospel with your friends. When they walk away, it's because their heart is already hard, is hardening again and again and again. Now, that doesn't mean they won't ever come to Christ. It just means at that moment, that precise moment, the word of God is hardening or softening the person who is hearing it. So when you, when you think, man, I just really blew that, you know, that whole sharing of the gospel. It just kind of was bleh, all over the way. No, don't worry about that. It is not you softening hearts. It is not you hardening hearts. It is the work of the Lord. And we leave it in his hands. And that's why John says, the angel told me, let it out. Let it out. Let it out of the church. Whatever the church can do to let the gospel out there, to, to have people hear the word of God, let it out. Let it out. Let God do what God does when he convicts hearts and he brings them to Christ or he hardens hearts until they break. That's God's work, not the work of the church. The next um, encouragement is to advance in holy conduct. This is verses 14 and 15. And the encouragement here is, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who, practice, uh, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The washing of robes is a picture of, of the believer who is saved in Christ. These robes are washed by the blood of the Lamb. It's, uh, John talks about that earlier, and we know, you know, if you take a white robe and you dip it into blood, it's not going to come out white, it's going to come out red. This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor for purity, that when we come to faith in Christ, we have been washed and made pure in his sight, made like him 
In fact, this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, to say we have been washed. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the best gospel presentation of grace right here. And such were some of you. But now you are washed. Now you are sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How many of you could see yourself in that list or John's list? Anyone? See, close your eyes, raise your hands. <laughs> Nobody sees right. Of course we were. All of us were. And I don't think these lists are complete. But they're enough to remind us that's where we were. And when we came to Christ, we're no longer that. We're not identified as idolaters anymore or swindlers or drunkards or greedy or homosexuals. We are cleansed. But the cleansing continues throughout the rest of our lives. That's what the process of sanctification is all about. Faith in Christ's blood is our security. And so we participate in the further washing. You know those oft-quoted words that are in the, 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 the book of Hebrews? You know, the sin that so easily besets us, right? We all have that. We've all experienced that. There's just this nag, there's this one or two sins. They just always trip us up. That's what the washing is for, the continual washing. We continue to go to Christ. We fail, we sin, and we go to the Lord, and we ask him to forgive us. We repent of our sin. We say, forgive us. John wrote in his letter, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, and we partake of the tree of life, and we have that new life continuing to bubble up inside of us, just like these plants, and we press on. The goal of our sanctification is authenticity between the things we say we believe and the actions of that belief. In other words, we look like what we say we are. And no matter how demanding the Christian life gets, it was very demanding for John's audience, it's still demanding for us. No matter how many times we fail, keep pursuing holiness. And on the occasion when we do fail our calling, we humble ourselves, we go to the Lord in repentance, we receive his forgiveness and then we carry on. We carry on. And to our great relief, our hope for heaven is not based on our worth, but on the worthiness of Christ. And we always have to hold that in front of us. So the final is a warning, actually, uh, as well. And that is to act on the truth. And John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described here in this book. Now, John is, to, uh, is, is grabbing a, uh, an Old Testament text out of Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 12 that talk about this very thing, not adding to God's word, not subtracting from God's word. And this isn't two different things. I think it's um, the two sides of the same coin. And what you can boil it down to this. Anybody who perverts the word of God by saying something God's word never said should be avoided. Anyone who perverts the word of God by saying something the word of God never said should be avoided. That teaching should be avoided. 
I was just trying to rack my brain a little while ago thinking, what's a good illustration of this? Well, I have, I have two. One from the Old Testament and one that I'll just, I just sort of made up and I hope I can get it out right. So Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. God says to them earlier, you can, have, you can eat of any tree in this garden except that one. Don't eat from that one. Any other tree is all yours, but that one you're not going to eat from. Chapter 3, Satan comes along as the serpent, and he says, really? Really? Did God really say that? Did God, did God really say you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Did you hear what he just did? You can eat of any tree of the garden, God said. The devil said, Didn't he, did he say you, could eat, you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Now, if Eve had had her wits with about her, and Adam was there. He wasn't off, you know, hiding behind a tree or whatever. He was standing right next to her. She should have said to that serpent, look, do you think I'm deaf and dumb? God said we could eat any tree except that one. And then Adam should have pulled out the word of God as a sword and chopped that snake up into bits, and then we would have had the New Hampshire flag. But that's not what happened. They listened. The serpent got into God's word and expanded and perverted its meaning. Now, that's still happening today. You will, uh, I'm, I'm studying for a course in human sexuality, Christian human sexual ethics for next fall. And I'm reading a lot of stuff. I had no idea there was so much stuff out there. Boy, when you tell me I got to read a lot of books, I'm with you. So I'm reading all these books. Now, take the issue of marriage, right? We, we know God has defined marriage as one man, one woman, for a lifetime, period. End of report. Jesus affirmed it himself. Paul affirmed it in Ephesians chapter 5. That's the definition of marriage. But today we have new definitions of marriage, don't we? Polyamory. And the people who defend polyamory, you know what polyamory is, right? Several people marrying each other all at once, like, you know, two guys and a girl or two yeah, whatever you want to mix it up to be with, I don't know. And they're saying, well, Jesus never said anything about polyamory, so it must be okay. Now, that's the kind of argument that perverts the Word of God, perverts it from the inside by just getting in and saying, Jesus didn't say anything about polyamory. It is, it is a, a, a denial of the Word at the same time as adding to the Word. It's the same action. It's adding, and the addition is a denial. And, and, and we have to be careful as believers to understand these arguments and be able to refute them. Now, the Bible often tells us to hold fast. There's 13 times when the Bible uses this word, well, we have it as two words, hold fast. 13 times in the Bible. Most of those, or the New Testament, most of those times are to hold fast to God's word. And there's one other that I'll just throw in at the end, now that it comes to mind. But the word has three different applications that I think really apply. First of all, occupy. Occupy. Hold fast. Occupy something. Like in a military action, uh, occupying a beachhead, occupying a town. Something that settles uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the ground, that no opposition can come at you. How do we do that? Well, we do that through meditation and memorization of God's Word. We memorize His Word so we will not 
Sin, we will not let sin encroach in our love for God. The second way that word is used is to restrain. That is to keep you from sinning. It's like having a leash on you. We had a dog several years ago. He, he was, I don't know, he was cute, but he was dumb. Uh, you, you open the door, and this dog would run out of the house. Every time, run out the house, right down the street. And, you know, the girls, our daughters would go chasing him, and you could see the look on this dog's face when he got to the end of the street. Where in the world am I? He's running, has no idea where he's going. And they would leash him up and drag him home. We need to do that with our flesh. We need to put a leash on our flesh so that when temptation rises um, uh, in front of us, and let me talk to you men and some women too who, who uh, use internet pornography. When you see that, you have five seconds to decide what you're going to do. And if you don't say stop and turn it off, you're going to get caught because that's what it takes. Stop. Restrain. I'm not going there. And the third way this word is used is to steady a ship in a storm. And I think this is the most illustrative way, right? When a ship is in a storm, it is really hard to stay on track to where you're going. But the sea captain, the captain of that ship, grabs a hold of that wheel and says, we're not moving off course. If we drift, I'm bringing us back. That is what we do with the word of God, not allowing it to um, be, uh, be inf infiltrated by anything else. When we're unsure of a decision, act on what's good. When we're weary or disheartened, we act on our hope in Christ. And when we feel insufficient, as I did yesterday morning, thinking about this sermon, thinking, who in the world am I who, who is going to preach, feeling insufficient to the task, I just looked at the Lord and I said, my confidence has got to be in you, Lord. I may preach, but you've got to do the work. Because I'm just saying general stuff that I think is true. But you know your people, and you know what they need individually. So, God, my confidence is in you. The uh, final application that John gives us is simply this. Pray for more grace. Now, at the end of the letter, I don't have that verse up here, but at the very end, you'll see he says something like this. You know, um, um, in the grace of God, you know, John or something. I, I can't remember now what it is. But he mentions grace in there. And it's more than just saying at the end of a letter or a document that he's sending, it's more than just saying, hey, you guys, I wrote all of this, so, like, you know, sincerely yours, John. We might do that. Very casual. John doesn't do that. He doesn't waste a word. He gets to the end of his, of his parchment and he says, I need to encourage these people to ask for more grace. And that's what he does in the final verse, verse 21. Ask for more grace. Ask for more grace. Come, Lord Jesus, is a powerful motivation for living a holy life, and we need more grace to do it because the, whole, the Christian life is not easy and it's not innate. Actually, our Christian life looks more like this. Our plan for growth is nice and smooth. God's plan for our growth, you wonder if you're ever going to grow at all. Two steps forward and three steps back. That's what it looks like, doesn't it? Isn't that your experience? 
Sometimes the top line is true. Things seem to be going really well. And then the bottom falls out. And you're challenged. Now will I continue to press on to grow in holiness or am I just going to sit on the bench and waste away at this point? Am I going to coast? Am I going to drift? Or am I going to fight? It's a spiritual battle, brothers and sisters. And so we ask for more grace. Let's pray to make our ambition to continue to grow in holiness so that we become more and more like Christ. In this world that hates him, probably will hate us, but they will know who he is because of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word commands us to be holy as you are holy. And we know that in ourselves, uh, we just can't live a life of true holiness except that the Lord Jesus lives his life in and through us and the Holy Spirit carries out this life-transforming work in us. Our hope is the blood of Christ that brings us into your family and unites us with Christ, who is our new identity. We are in Christ. That's our new identity. Old things are passed away. Everything is made new. That's our new identity. And we ask that increasingly his nature and his character may be developed in us until we can say, as Paul did, my old self has died and I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we ask that you would do whatever it takes to root out all that is contrary to your desire for us to grow in Christ and that you would increasingly transform us into the image and likeness of your Son. Lord, we know this is not an easy prayer. We know that it's going to be challenging and may even cause some pain. But we believe that this is your will for each one of your children. And so we say, Father, your will be done in my life. Give us a desire and the grace to become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. All for your praise and all for your glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand and, and worship the Lord together one more time before we go.